Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. John chapter 18. I'm beginning a new sermon series next week that we've entitled Tension, Faith versus Culture. And it's officially not starting until next week, but I kind of wanted to do an introduction this week because the things we're going to look at and talk about this week are really foundational. But before I get into kind of John 18 and the sermon this morning, I wanted to kind of tell you a little bit more about what this series is going to be about. We're really going to be tackling tough questions, issues of society, things that we struggle with, things that we hear about, things we're not quite sure what to do with as far as our faith is concerned. And so every week I'll kind of give you just a little bit of a teaser about what the next week is going to be about. So I've decided, I've talked a lot with my team about this and prayed a lot about this. I've decided that next Sunday morning, the first sermon I'm going to preach in this series is going to be about social media. Now, in order to kind of tease this a little bit, let's do something that's interesting, uh, first of all, in our group. If you have or use on some level Instagram, Snapchat, Snapchat, Facebook, or what's another one? Twitter, there you go. If you use one of those four, raise your hand. Just raise them up high. Come on. Wow. Okay, put them back down. I'm not going to embarrass those of you who don't, but I'm sure there's a couple that don't. Now, let me give you just a little bit of a teaser here for next week. Here's some information that'll, that'll shock you. Twitter, I'm, excuse me, Facebook. I'm just going to do Facebook, and I'm going to kind of talk about all these a little bit next week. But Facebook alone, three, <laughs> 350 million pictures are uploaded per day on Facebook. 350 million pictures per day. 510,000 comments are posted every 60 seconds. 510,000 comments are posted every 60 seconds. Now, I'm not going to stand up here next week and tell you to do away with your Twitter account. I'm not going to do that, okay? Because I understand in the real world, social media is not going anywhere. We're not going to do away Facebook or Instagram, and in and of themselves, those things are not bad. What I'm going to do instead is figure out how we leverage these things, first of all, for the sake of the kingdom, and how we live in that space. Because I'm real fearful, the more I study and the more I kind of pay attention, that we kind of, kind of fall into this trap of believing we can exist in the social media space in a different way than we exist in the real world. I can say things to you in social media I'd never say in the real world. I can act a certain way on social media in ways that I would never act in the real world. And I'm just fearful as believers and as people that try to live by the the truth of the gospel that we're kind of being misled by society and how we ought to live and how we ought to act. And so next week, we're just going to tackle this idea of social media. What is it? How should we use it? How do we compare what culture says about it versus what faith says about it? Now, before we get into that sermon series next week and those individual topics, I wanted to kind of think this week a little bit about something that's foundational to everything that we say over the next many weeks. Everything in this series is going to be built upon something that I want to think about today. And in order to kind of begin the process of thinking through it and and kind of understanding what Scripture says, I want to put a question on the screen that I want you to consider and think about we're going to answer this morning. What is truth? 
Now, that's a question that's been asked for centuries. In fact, we're going to see in John 18, Pilate asks it of Jesus. But I got a feeling the way some of us answer it and the way the world answers it are different. And let me say it even another way. I got a feeling those of us over the age of 35 would answer it differently than those under the age of 35. Because we, we, we can laugh and, and kind of joke about this idea of absolute truth and kind of w- what our world has become. But we are living literally in a battle for the truth. We're, we're living in a world that doesn't answer this question the way we would answer it. We're, we're living in a world that does not answer this question the way the Bible would answer it. And so let me give you just food for thought, some modern ways in which truth can be defined. Here's the way that our modern society thinks about truth. They would say something like this. Truth comes from within. There's nothing external. It's only internal. Truth is within. Your truth is different than my truth, they would say. Truth is relative. It may be right for you, but it's not right for me. One writer explained it like this. Some people think there are no absolute truths. Truth for them is simply what they think. Everything is relative. What is true for them might not be true for others. And so we need to kind of ponder and consider based on the word of God as Christians, how should we answer this question? Because you you may not be aware of this, but truth really from the beginning of time has been questioned. I don't want you to look back at this, but I just want you to remember just for a few moments, Genesis chapter 2. Remember, God had created everything good, no sin. He looked around and it was perfect. He put Adam and Eve in the garden and he basically said to them, listen, eat everything you want except for this particular tree. Remember that? Adam and Eve make the mistake of eating from the tree, and then Satan enters the picture. And it's fascinating to me what Satan does. Just listen. Don't look. Just listen. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, right, the first words out of the mouth of Satan in Genesis chapter 3, did God actually say? Isn't that interesting? The first thing the enemy does is question the truth of the Lord. Like, Eve, are you, are you sure God really said that? Do, do, you, do you think he really meant it? And he said, she says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, Genesis 3, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See, from, from the beginning, the enemy has questioned the truth of God. And there's nothing new under the sun. Truth has always been at play, but it seems like in our society currently, it's a battle that's raging more so than ever before. And if you think it's settled in your mind, good for you, but there are a lot of people in this room, there are a lot of students especially in this room, that I promise you, it's not settled for them. And they're living in a world where truth is questioned day after day after day. And so I wanted to spend some time this morning thinking about absolute truth in Scripture to understand the foundation for the rest of this series over the coming weeks. So John chapter 18, let's take a look in our Scripture. Just a little bit of background on what's happened here. Jesus has been arrested. He's been kind of rounded up by the religious leaders. They've taken him to the high priest. Now they've taken him to the Roman governor, Pilate, John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. We have it on the screen. 
Bible says, then they, these are the, the religious leaders, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside of them and said, this is important, we're going to come back to this, what accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. Then Jesus said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone, excuse me, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now pause there for a second. I'm going to give you the first truth. It's important for us to understand. It's going to sound simplistic to a lot of us, but it's going to be news to other people. Truth number one, put it on the screen. Truth isn't based on our perception or our opinion. Truth isn't based on our perception or our opinion. Now, sometimes our opinions are correct. Sometimes they're true. Sometimes our perception is true. Sometimes it's correct. But just because it's our opinion and our perception does not necessarily make it truth. Now, the question for many of us is how do we arrive at this place in society today? Like, how do we get to this place where we can really even think about truth as not based in reality or not based in, in absolutes? How did we get to this place where, where truth is about perception to many or opinions to others? And so I wanted to kind of give you just a real brief history lesson, just kind of a, a big picture understanding of, of how truth has kind of changed and, and been molded and shaped over the centuries. It's not going to take a long time, but I think it will be helpful for you to understand how we arrived at where we are today. Now, if you were to rewind about 2,000 years to the early centuries, first century, second century, in those time periods, truth came orally. The way you learned things were from people telling stories. And so the way it looked for so many families is they would sit around the campfire, and I'm being simplistic, they'd sit around the house, they'd sit around the table, and granddaddy would tell them a story. They would learn the story, they'd pass it to their kids, it would pass it to their kids, it would pass it to their kids, right? The, the apostles learned from Jesus this way. They sat around and they talked. Jesus taught them. He explained things to them. The early century church learned through the teachings of the apostle, right? It's an oral tradition, right? It's a tradition where they would sit down and speak. Interestingly enough, in parts of the world today where they don't have written languages or they can't read or books are not readily available, it's the same process. So you go to Africa today and you sit out in the bush and everybody sits around the open spot in the village and they listen to the elderly people talk. It's fascinating. Still the world they do. Still the world they live in, right? So that rocked on for several centuries. Oral tradition, people are talking, passing down truth through story. right? Middle centuries, say uh, 12, 13, 1400s, the Bible exists, obviously. It's being passed around, but it didn't exist like this. Now, just a, just a news flash, and you guys probably know this, but the idea that you have all 66 books in a bound copy is unusual in history. Just in the last couple of hundred years, that's really even been an option for you. Right, before that, Paul wrote the book of Ephesus, right? Ephesians, he wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus. He wrote it on a scroll. He sent it to the church. There was one copy. The church may have made additional copies and passed it along, but it was difficult to get the word of God. And so as copies continued 
More and more are passed around the middle centuries. The Bible came more and more important. Printing press is invented in about the 14, I think 1439 or so. The Bible is printed, mass produced. The word of God becomes more and more important. Right? So tradition now, the, the oral storytelling is not as big of a deal. We're not going to listen to the stories as much anymore because we've got a copy of God's word. That rocked on for several centuries, right? The Bible is printed, it's mass produced, it's passed around. People have the opportunity, if they could read it, to get it, to learn it, to study it. The Bible becomes truth, right? Enter the 1600s, right? Now, I'm testing your historical knowledge a little bit. You may remember this phrase, the age of reason or the enlightenment. 16, 1700s, the world kind of woke up and said, you know what, we've got minds, We've got logic, we've got reason, we can figure things out on our own. We don't need oral tradition anymore. We don't need granddaddy telling us stories. That's done. The Bible is pretty good, but we can also learn things from our brains. We can reason through things. And so we can think about medicine and how the body works and how we need to heal ourselves. We can think about science, right, and what we can learn. We can think about astronomy. We can think about invention. The world begins to change, right? The Industrial Revolution would follow that in the 1800s. Things were changing. People were beginning to say, listen, tradition is gone. The Bible is okay, but, man, we can think through things now. We can come up with our own answers. We can come up with our own logic and our own knowledge. Everything's good, right? That rocked along for a couple of centuries. Enter the 20th century. We've set aside tradition. We've set aside, for the most part, the Word of God. We've focused on our ability to think, our ability to reason. The mindset is, listen, we can just think and get better and get smarter. Society will increase and get better and smarter, and everything's going to be great. We're headed towards a utopia, inner World War I, inner World War II, inner the Holocaust, inner the Vietnam War, and all of a sudden people said, you know what, maybe we're not getting better. Maybe all this technology that we've created, instead of helping us, is actually killing us. If you add up all the deaths and wars in all the centuries, the 21st century, the 20th century is more than any other combined. And so people begin to say, you know, we couldn't trust tradition. That's out. We, we don't really trust the Bible anymore. That's out. Maybe reason isn't good enough either. Maybe we can't think our way and have enough logic to get to this idea of utopia. And so people begin to say, you know what, there's nothing out there I can trust. The only thing I know for certain is me. I'm going to begin to kind of set my own course. I can't trust anybody else. I'm going to decide what's right for me. You can decide what's right for you. That's where we are. Now, as silly as that sounds, and as much as we want to argue about it, it's actually what's going on in our world today. And so if you go talk to a student, a college student, a millennial, somebody that's, that's younger than you are, early 30s, 20s, teens, their view of truth and their understanding of truth is going to be different than yours. They're taught, in simplistic terms, this idea of relativism. Right? You make up truth... That's best for you. And so I've got something on the screen I want to show you to kind of help you understand the difference. Modern versus postmodern. Put it on the screen for me. If we were to define modern, again, these are just general big picture terms, just simplistic ideas. Modern, which was 50 years ago and before, facts, rationality, evidence, right? Truth was based in fact. Go to postmodern. Postmodern, truth is based in fairness, relationships, and emotion. 
Right? I'm not going to give much of this away, but I've been reading a, a, a secular book on gender dysphoria to prepare for my sermon here in a few weeks. Right? The idea that we get to choose our genders. This guy spends a couple of chapters arguing that gender is not based on actual physical things. It's based on your emotion and your relationships with others and the decision that you make for yourself. This is the argument he's making. Well-known guy. He's not laughed off the stage of truth in our world. He's proclaimed as this guy gets it. Why? Because we're living in a world of fairness. We're living in a world of relationships. We're living in a world of emotion. The postmodern view of truth, we have that on the screen as well, says this. It's a perspective reality that exists in the perspective of the individual or the group. Now, we think that's silly. We, again, we can argue and laugh at that, but that's the world that we're living in. Here's the problem. Our perception and our opinion are not necessarily reality. Just because you think it's true doesn't mean it's true. Now, let's, with all that in mind, let's jump back into the Scripture. John chapter 18, and I want you to notice what happens in verse 29. Pull John 18, 29 up for me if you would, please. I want you to notice what Pilate does here. So Pilate went outside to them, to the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus is standing there, and he asked this very interesting question. What accusation do you bring against this man? What's what's he done wrong? What what has Jesus done wrong? What's the problem here? And I want you to know something very subtle that takes place, something very interesting that takes place in verse 30, their answer. Notice what they say. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, rewind. Let's just think through it again. Go back, to the, go back to verse 29. Pilate says, what did he do wrong? Go to verse 30. If he hadn't have done something wrong, we wouldn't have brought him to you, right? You see what's happening here? No mention of fact. No mention of truth. No mention of an actual accusation. Like, here's what he did wrong. Here are the crimes he committed. It's really just our perception, Pilate, that he's done some things wrong. It's our perception and our opinion. Obviously, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he hadn't have done things wrong. He's committed no crime, and yet the Jewish religious leaders, because of their perception, want him crucified. Here's the problem. When truth is no longer based in fact but instead based in opinion and perception. We have no foundation. We have no anchor on which we can hold. But that's the world we live in. People don't know how to make decisions about things in life because they're not sure what the foundation is. They're not sure how they should feel about certain issues because they're not sure what the foundation is. They're not sure how they should move and navigate through this culture because they don't know what the foundation is, right? It's not about truth anymore. It's about perception. It's about your opinion. And when it's based on your opinion, truth changes. And so as believers, right, as believers, let's kind of whittle this thing down a little bit and get it closer to home for us. As believers, we've got to think biblically about truth. You understand that? We, we can't think culturally about truth. So what does the Bible say about truth? Let's continue. Verse 33, John 18. We've got it on the screen. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Right. So these guys are not telling him anything about Jesus. He's got to go to Jesus himself. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Right? So Pilate says, listen, give me something you've done wrong. Jesus answered, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, this is important. So you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world. So here's the purpose right here. To bear witness to the, what's the word? Truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, in the same question we started with, what is truth? Here's the second thing I want you to see in this scripture, number two. Foundational for us today as we move forward in this series and in our lives. Truth number two, Jesus Christ is truth. So let me just speak to the student very quickly. If you're ever wondering if you're unsure, if you're kind of awash in this relativism of postmodernism and you're not sure what your opinion is, always come back to the truth of Christ. It hadn't changed in 2,000 years. Hadn't changed. It's not going to change. The truth of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has stated this clearly before, right? These are things that he said. This is not new. I want to read just a few verses. You don't have to look them up, but follow with me in the book of John. John 1, 14 says, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and, do you know, truth. John 1, 17. For the law is given through Moses, grace and, you want to guess, truth came through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, just in case there was any question, there was any uncertainty, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now we would say Jesus is absolute truth. Jesus has spoken to us through the Bible. And so we can say with certainty, listen, our foundation, our anchor is found in the Scripture, right? But here's the problem with postmodernism. Here's the problem with the world we live in, younger generations especially. They begin to ask questions like this. Listen, if this is foundational for me, if this is my absolute truth, how do I know it's real? Like, how can I trust this? You're telling me it's real, good, that's good for you, but in the postmodern world, your truth may not necessarily be my truth. How can I know it's real? And so I'm going to kind of take probably what would be hours worth of teaching and condense them into just a few minutes, and I'm going to give you kind of some historical and biblical reasons we know the Bible is true. Now, let me just say this. This is a 30,000-foot view. If you're interested, please call me. There's a lot more I could tell you about this, but I'm going to give you just kind of whet your appetite a little bit in your trust of the Word of God. The kind of three things here that I'm going to give you that help us understand the Bible is true. The first one, we have it on the screen, the Bible has more copies and manuscripts than any other ancient book in existence. Now, here's what some people do. They, they question, is the Bible true? How do we know it's accurate? It's been passed down for many centuries, but are we sure that it's been passed down correctly? You write it one way and then someone else writes it a different. How do we know this is what's really going on? So one of the things we look at is the existence of other ancient books, right? There are other ancient books that exist. There are other books around we can kind of compare this to. So let me give you just a little bit of facts about the scripture. We have it up first. Pull it up. The next one. The New Testament, written between 60 and 100 A.D., 
approximately 5,700 copies. The earliest copy dated from 117 CE. Now, let's just for fun, let's talk about CE just for a second. How many of you know what CE is? Raise your hand. Seriously, raise your hand. How many of you don't? Okay, good. Thanks for being honest. CE is the old AD. All right, we're going to get confusing here. Remember, it used to be BC before Christ. AD, after death. It was actually a Latin word, but we said after death. It was easy to remember. Based on the birth and death of Jesus Christ, BC, AD. Well, they've taken that away, right? Because we cannot talk about Jesus on any level. So it can't be BC anymore. It has to be CE, which is the common error, and BCE, which is before the common error. Okay, so BC is now before the common error. AD is now CE, which is common error. You with me? How many are confused, right, other than me? You're very confused. Here's the funny thing. They still base it on the birth of Jesus. They just won't use his name. Isn't that that ironic? They didn't change the calendar. They just changed the name. It's still based. The common error is the birth of Christ, FYI. So I put CE to to be correct so our students will understand. Because textbooks now or or anything you read, modern stuff about history, uses this language, okay? So the earliest copy is 17 CE. We'll say 17 AD, right? So in other words, we've got copies of the Bible that we have discovered written about 100 years after the birth of Jesus, right? Those are real close to when they were actually written. There are about 5,700 of those that exist today. That's a lot of copies of an ancient book. Now, to put that in perspective, it's important for us to put in perspective, go to the next one, the works of Julius Caesar. Is it 1038? 1038? 1038? All right, let's keep going. Works of Julius Caesar, it's not good when the pastor's late on time, but he doesn't know the time, that's a bad thing. Works of Julius Caesar, written between 150 BCE, right? Uh, Today we have 10 copies, no originals. 10, compared to 5,700 copies of the Bible. The earliest copy we have dates to about 900 AD or 900 CE. Right, So, so the works of Julius Caesar, nobody writes about how we shouldn't believe this. Nobody questions this. Nobody wonders if this is accurate. Nobody says we shouldn't listen to Julius Caesar. It wasn't copied properly. It's not correct. We just accept it as truth. It's taught as literature. All the major universities accept it, and yet it's paltry in comparison to the Word of God. Numbers of copies we have, how old the ancient one was. Go to the next one. The Annals by Tactus, a Roman historian. He wrote 142 books. There are 20 copies and no originals. Now, I I picked these two because these are two pretty well-known in history books, ancient manuscripts that nobody questions, yet people question the Word of God all. How do we know this is true? Why don't we ask, how do we know the works of Julius Caesar are true? I'll tell you why. Because the world does everything it can to dismiss this, to defeat this. We we don't want to live in a world where we have to believe it's true. We'd rather just call it an error and move on. But we can trust that it's true One of the reasons is because we have so many copies of the originals dated to such an early time period. kind of blows out of the water all of the other ancient texts. Here's the second thing. The Bible contains a unified message. Right, Written by about 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, yet the themes run through Scripture. They're the same in Genesis as they are in Revelation. Isn't that amazing? Now, if I took 40 people out of this room, put you in a room, 
and told you to write a book, could I come back together and all those books be very similar? No way. No way. Could they have the same themes? Absolutely not. Could one of your books talk about something the other book was going to talk about? No way. You know, we have a scripture written by these authors over all these years, three languages that point to the same unified message. Here's the third thing we see. The Bible speaks truth in our lives. We can talk about history. We can talk about manuscripts. We can talk about copying. We can talk about scribes, all those things. But nobody can dismiss what the Word of God has done in your life. Nobody can dismiss how Jesus Christ gives you hope. One of the things you can do when you, when you argue this idea of truth, absolute, you can argue what Scripture has done in your life with absolute certainty. You can say to people, I'm not sure what you believe, and, and we can discuss truth, and we can discuss all that if you want to. But for me, the Word of God is active and living, and it's changed the way I look at life, and it's changed the way I live. I can't argue with that. Now let's continue. I need to finish this up. Acts, I'm, excuse me, John 18, verse 38, right? So Pilate said to him, what is truth, right? We've already seen that Jesus is truth. After he said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, right? So in other words, Pilate says, listen, he's done nothing wrong. Jesus has done nothing wrong, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. By the way, he's also a murderer and an insurrectionist. Truth number three, and this is the world we live in. This is going to hit home for some of y'all. Number three, our desire to make our own decisions and to create our own truth sometimes outweighs our ability to hear and see real truth. Let me say that again. Our desire to make our own decisions and create our own truth sometimes outweighs our ability to hear and see real truth. Here's the bottom line. We want to do what we want to do. And I'm not really willing for somebody else or some other thing to dictate in my life how I ought to live. That's the world we live in. See, Pilate says to these people, I find no guilt in him. There's nothing he's really done wrong Surely, Pilate says, you'd like for me to release him to you. The leaders say, you know what? It's not really about truth. It's not really about what he's done wrong. It's not about any of those things. It's about our opinion and perception of him. We don't like what he's doing. We want to crucify him. Isn't it fascinating that the same struggles that the leaders had in John 18 are the same struggles we have today? See, our fleshly desire is always for self-gratification, self-pleasure, self-centeredness. We usually choose ourselves, even if we have to choose it over the truth. But don't be fooled. There is absolute truth. There is a foundation upon which we can walk. There's a foundation upon which we can build our lives. It's found only in Jesus Christ, only in his word. And we must, as believers, think biblically, live biblically, act biblically. Christ and his word must be the foundation of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It's clear, it's true, it's understandable. Father, we just praise your name. We praise your name that you've given us a foundation. We don't have to wonder. Father, we don't, we don't have to be blown around and tossed with the storms of life, uncertain of where we're going and what we're doing. You've given us your truth. You've given us your word. You've given us this anchor, Lord. Allow us to hold to it. Allow the next many weeks, Father, as we talk about this tension with culture and faith to be enlightening for us, 
Help us to better understand the world we live in, but help that, Father, strengthen our foundation in your word and your truth. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Use us in all things for the sake of the kingdom, Father. We love you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand. The altar is open, an opportunity for you to pray, speak to me. You respond as we sing together this morning. The stars were made to worship so Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.